You're listening to the Old Soul Podcast. My name is Ryan Dockery, and today we are hearing from my longest and best childhood friend, Nicole Hosian. I'm excited for you to hear our conversation about our journeys regarding mental health and how we got to where we are today with diligent effort towards bettering our minds. Nicole is currently working towards her degree in psychology with the goal of becoming a licensed mental health counselor with a focus on early childhood development and adolescence. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you get value from our personal stories and hindsight. Don't forget to please leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And once again, my name is Ryan, and thank you for listening. Enjoy. Processing and going through the states of mental exercise about th- and thinking about what your you know, situation is and what you're doing and how your life is kind of occurring. Like, that's really something that you never end up not being able to, you know. Well, something that I learned in therapy, and I feel like if I have any advice with my future clients when I do happen to reach that point, is I want to let them know, you know how... Most people who are depressed, studies have shown it's because they live in the past. You have to find balance. Like It's very good to look on the past, but only to reflect, to see how you can slowly connect the dots of like past circumstances, past decisions, past ways of thinking. It helps you kind of, if you look back on, if you're in a current situation and you're like, well, this situation feels so familiar. Like the way I'm feeling is so familiar. How can I control my reaction and make it one where it's not going to hurt me? Yeah. And what I've learned is if it does feel familiar to me, I'll try and I'll think, I'll try and think on it and get to a past experience where i've gone through like the similar thing and or or or, sorry to cut you off you could have a beagle puppy that's (laughs) just going to do not bite that cable come on get up here (laughs) she's so cute though oh she's peeing she peed a little bit lord come on (laughs) come on but yeah you're saying um yeah no when anything feels similar um i will try and look back to reflect Whenever I'm going through something, I typically, before I react, I try to take a step back. Because, I mean, the only thing that we can control in this world is our own reactions and our own thoughts regarding any situation. So sometimes I struggle, but I feel like that's human nature where we just all struggle sometimes. But... With my therapy progress, even when I started back last or earlier this year, my therapist told me the same thing, that most people who are depressed are the ones who live in the past. And you have to find that balance of not living in the past, but be able to look back and reflect on past decisions, past ways of thinking, um, past how you reacted to any kind of situation, whether it was bad or good, and not only look for improvement in your failures, but also your successes. 
And that's what I've been trying to do is whenever anything happens, like good or bad, enjoying it in the moment, but also being able to take that step back and go, well, let's reflect on the past. How have I learned? Because I do like seeing where I was and where I am now mm-hmm. and take the instant, the what happened to me recently with that uh, potential employer. Like this isn't the second time that it's happened. The first time that it happened, I was freshly 21 and my reaction to her was not mature at all. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to, I said some, Oh, I didn't say unkind some things to her, words. Yeah. but I said some choice words to her, mm-hmm. ba- essentially letting her know what I did recently, yeah. but not as mature. Right. And depression and having depression and, you know, as like, it is something where in order to be like, I really don't believe I, I like your philosophy that depression equals deep rest and that it's actually the body's period of time where it's rebuilding and kind of it's learning. You know, that's the beauty of neuroplasticity, right? Our, our brains are not static. They're dynamic. They change and they change with our environment. They change with different things that happen. They change with experiencing the same thing, but in a different way. And the brain's react differently than the human body like you know how physical trauma to the body affects it well trauma for the brain is just as dangerous as say an actual injury itself yeah and with that deep rest so how it was explained to me and how i learned in one of my let me let me finish my thought real quick is that with you're totally right in that when it comes to our bodies and physical injuries, we're a lot more compassionate, right? We end up being a lot more attentive to a wound. We end up being a lot more because it's a physical. You don't just slap a bandaid on it. Well, you, well, you you could. My point being, when it's a physical um, ailment, it's a lot easier to attend to because you can see it. Yeah, you can see it. You can feel it. It's ever present. Like it is actively. Other people can see it. Other people can, you know, validate that that's what's going on. A mental injury, quote unquote, a mental trauma is invisible. It's not something that people can see. It's not something that people can directly relate to because it's where you got that. You know, if you have someone who fell off a bike, you can also say, oh, well, I remember also falling off a bike. And I remember that it was not a fun experience. I broke my right arm, you know, blah, blah, blah. I took a chunk out of my knee. Right. Yeah. And I have the scars to prove it. And you can see those scars and they're, you know... They're you right. can something about it is you're able to move past it's, it faster. It's like you're tangible to, almost. You're able to get back on a bike. Yeah. Again. And you know, and then unless there was a mentally traumatic experience with that bike fall where maybe say you know, it was at a certain intersection and yeah. that intersection you know, it was something where or the bike accident was something completely out of your control. You know, and it was, that's the one thing with trauma that's really kind of what, uh, you don't just get physically injured. You also do get trauma from that experience and the trauma. Well, what I was about to say is that the mental trauma is one of the earmarks for mental trauma is that you're helpless in that situation is that you, the choice and ability to get yourself out of it has been revoked in some yeah. way. And that is the you go into that fight or flight. damning part of it, right? And that's the part that leaves you 
that's the part that stays with you. That's the part that goes from a conscious memory and thought and reaction to an emotional subconscious reaction. And that's when you get these trauma responses where people don't understand why they're reacting the way that they are. They're just reacting to something that is triggering and is invoking a neural pathway that's almost ancient in the terms of your life. You know, not in terms of it's something primal or, you know, comes from, you know, before we were born. It's not evolutionary, but it's something that happened way, 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 way long ago in our personal history, you know, from the time you were born to the present, that doesn't, that is causing you to revisit that moment you just don't know because you're not revisiting that conscious moment you're revisiting how you felt in that during moment. that specific and right. that's like with ptsd is you're not yes. necessarily going through the same experience but at the same time when you go through an experience and it feels similar mm-hmm. that's that ptsd where you're you're your subconscious is it's activated right and you go back in time to that moment where you were in that initial traumatic experience Correct. so not only are you experiencing the old, the old traumatic emotions but you're experiencing new ones and it's kind of like a build up right like the snowball effect Correct. And it's crazy. I mean, the stigma that there is, I mean, it's definitely gotten better within the past few years. Yes. But there's still such a stigma around mental health. And on that note, I just want to let everyone who's listening know, um, Nicole and I, my name is Ryan, and this uh, lovely lady sitting in front of me is Nicole. She's my best friend. Um, We are not licensed or clinical um, psychologists or licensed mental health counselors whatsoever. We are just simply two individuals who have experience with therapy, who are actively, I know, actively Active going therapy. therapy. And I'm actually studying to be Correct. a clinical psychologist. Correct. And, and I love that perspective because in the education world, in academia, you're able to actually get exposure to a lot broader swath of I ideas mean, than if take you're Take, for in, instance, with that fight or flight, Right. You don't hear much more about it until you take classes. Correct. I love that. And, you know, point being where I was going with letting everyone know that we're not licensed is that if you are in a situation where you believe that yourself or someone else around you is in need of some form of um, therapy or any form of, you know, uh, mental health, health. Counseling. Um, counseling or psychiatry, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of psychiatry, but it has its place. Um, you know, go seek help. You know, don't try to don't try to do these things on your own. Because I did that I, I before. Did that too. I I think everybody goes through a period of time where they try to do that because they're like, I think, at least in the South where we grew up, and you know, this is not any knocking the South or whatever, but there is a stigma where you're supposed to really be kind of all gender to yourself. roles are very big. They're very big and the gender norms that, and you know, I will say that it's, the funny thing is this is one of those things that nobody talks about. Like it's not based off of gender roles. Women are, are ostracized for talking about their real emotional problem because, well, women are always emotional. Like that's, that's the blanket statement that shuts the whole conversation down. And it's so incredibly off base of human nature in general. And then men on the other side of the coin they are... They can't cry. They have to be stoic. Right. They have to be brooding. They have to be the protectors. Men have to be these stone cold assholes in order to be 
functioning contributory members of society. But let me tell you, that's so untrue. Men who embrace their emotions and not afraid to embrace them or experience them, I think those are the sexiest kind of people. Hey, me too. I totally agree with seeing a man cry is is quite. It's not entertaining, but no, but it shows it shows human emotion, and I feel like human emotion, whether it be anger, sadness, happiness, it's beautiful because that's you're experiencing human life, and like that's the biggest thing that I've learned is that therapy taught me that happiness is not a destination like you cannot just wake up one day and automatically feel happy that's right it's never also not happy. a physical place it or is a journey item. it is a journey through your entire life where you're gonna have really high highs you're gonna have really low lows and then sometimes you're gonna be in the middle right. and that's perfectly okay everybody's journey is different everybody's way of healing is different but what matters the most is that you take that initial step. Because yeah. let me tell you, starting therapy is so, it's really scary, especially coming from me where in the beginning I didn't want to do therapy. And that's because I was forced. Like I was in such a dark place. You have to come to therapy with the right mindset. Yeah. If you don't go to therapy with the mindset to improve yourself and be able to not necessarily attack your trauma, but be able to look back and try and see those connections like I was talking about earlier and make them not so negative. Look at the experience and go, Hey, you know, it was really shitty that happened. Like that is going to, that changed me for the rest of my life. Yeah. But it also gave me lessons and it showed me how to react when a situation happens again. Yeah. And that's probably it's um, cognitive behavioral therapy. That's mm-hmm. the process that you go through where basically you have someone else, a licensed individual, walk you. They aren't poking and prodding. They're not asking you, hey, air out all of your dirty laundry from your childhood. That's not what they're doing. Mm-mm. What they're saying is they're actually going to start at the surface level. And once again, I only know this because of my experience with it. Um, you know, They start at the surface level of what's going on right now. You know, why, what brought you here? Why are you all of a sudden in, or maybe not all of a sudden, but why are you now willing to come forward and share what you're feeling? And what are you looking to get out of it? What have you done, you know, to bring you here? And then, what do you, what what do you expect? Yeah. What do you do now? Yeah. Yeah. And then the first step, it's the first step. And then as soon as they begin to, I don't want to call it unravel, but more like, more like allow you to how my therapist explained it to me was putting the puzzle pieces together like we're trying to like right now we don't exactly know what the picture is going to be you're totally right and And you you have to slowly just even if it's not like you're you jump around from like different thing to different thing you're still able to slowly start connecting those pieces together and every therapy session every day that you start to work on yourself and you really put in that effort Mm -hmm. you'll never not have like a pain in your chest almost like you always have your depression you'll always have your anxiety it's not who you are but it's a part of you and I feel like with therapy what therapy can do it helps you recognize like situations around you where it may 
trigger your depression. It may trigger your anxiety, but therapy also gives you those building blocks that you need in order to handle it in a healthy manner for yourself. Yes. And I, there is a statement that you said in terms of that your anxiety and depression never go away. I, I don't believe that. Um, and the reason I don't believe that is because it's not my experience. Yeah. Everybody's experience is different. Um, and for me, it's not, what I'm about to say is not how you get rid of depression or anxiety. Like it's just not necessarily the cure all, right? If we had that, (laughs) a lot of people in the pharmaceutical industry would not be happy. (laughs) Um, but, and I think that our brains, and I'm going to preface this statement with what I'm about to say now, is that our brains are so individual and they're very complex. We work, we have certain brain centers, we have the same brain centers, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, you know. So our brains are all kind of working with the same equipment, but they have different wirings. They have different connections and they have different experiences. They have different implicit and explicit memories. Um, we have different biases and, and different life experiences all together and your life experiences are the programming in which the computer runs on your brain being the computer and so basically everybody's programming being different means that your reactions are going to be a little bit different so your your pathway out of depression anxiety is going to be different that's why you know ssris don't always work that's why alcoholism doesn't always work. That's why some people, alcoholism does work. That's why some people, SSRIs, they do work. Everybody's, you know, pathway to, not recovery, but pathway to healing and recovery in some ways is different, right? Um, Just like how you got there is different different and unique. So for me, my journey out of that Um, mental fog was realizing two things. A, the human brain cannot be broken. It is not something that's breakable because of the fact it's neuroplastic. It heals and it changes. Our brain is literally the consistency of butter. (laughs) But I will say in my studies... Let me wrap this up real quick. So it can't be broken. It's... And because... First off, I think that using the term broken with anybody Buddy, it's like is, very, that's what I wanted to point out was is not good. Nobody is broken necessarily. It's you may have a few pieces of yourself that aren't whole, but you're never broken. You've got a few wires that are you've not got a connected. few connections in your mind in your neuroplastic brain. And I want to keep saying that because like that's the science, right? Like the neuroplasticity of your mind, it changes. It's amazing. Like when you actually look into it and you see how your brain works, it's fascinating. Right. Your brain is always on and, and it's always changing. It's always growing and developing because, well, that's what it's built to do. I feel like the brain is one of the most amazing organs of the body. Oh, it's remarkable. And so you've got the first one was, you know, I, the taking out the word broken, right? Like, you're not, the brain can be broken. It just changes. You know, everyone says like, oh, people never change. Yeah, they do. They just don't change in the way that you want them to. Exactly. So that's the first kind of, you know, nugget of truth that I experienced with therapy. And the second was awareness. Being able to simply 
tell yourself and be honest with yourself in any given moment, I'm having an anxiety attack. And that anxiety attack doesn't have to look like you breathing into a paper bag, melting down. An anxiety attack can happen when you're in shopping public. in the grocery store or when you're at the gym. And it's... you just keep going. You keep operating because a you don't want anyone to see, and b you don't want to end up breathing into a paper bag with everybody staring around you. And so that's the biggest thing. Is as soon as you have that awareness, that's the foothold. As soon as you're in the bread aisle and you say to yourself, okay, this is what's going on. I know this. And I know I survived the last one. I'll survive so I'm, this one. I'm going to survive this one. And I'm just going to feel it. Because, you know, medication, you might not have that on you. Or your normal coping mechanisms that are usually within reach, maybe, you know, a nicotine or maybe a shot. I don't know. I'm not condoning you know, alcoholism for anxiety and depression, but some people, well, my point being, you don't have the necessary, like the crutch that you normally lean on. <clears throat> but what you do have is the ability to say, yes, this is what's going on. And I'm just going to try and refocus on picking out which bread I want yeah. or the milk that I want. And just, just mo focus on the here and now. Try to invoke your serotonin, your endocannabinoids, the endorphins, and try to get out of your dopamine system of the stuff that you want. Come into the present moment. Try to really focus on the here and now as much as you can. And, you know, I hate all the... Just breathe. Like, uh, slow your breathing down. Bring your heart rate down. You know, try to just simply come back into the here and now. But mainly, the whole point is just going, oh, this is what's happening. That's the first step. The Anything awareness. after that, you just have to let happen happen, right? Like if you end up on the floor breathing into a paper bag, so be it. At least you notice that it's happening and you're able to communicate. You're able to say, hey, so-and-so, so a grocery store attendant, you know, something's happening. Depending on, you know, how severe your attack is. You're able to get to the car, sit down, breathe, and whatever triggered the anxiety, then after having that awareness, you're able to say, Looking at that brand of bread caused me to remember the sandwiches that I was made in the lunchroom in second grade where my teacher was abusive to me. Yeah. And that caused me to... Now, that's a long jump. Like, that's a big jump. But it's it like takes the, time. Remember how I said connecting those pieces? It's connecting those pieces. Exactly. But the first thing is awareness... And then you say, I'm not broken because of it. I'm just simply remembering. It's all it is. I feel like in saying... I shouldn't of, say it's like, all it is. It's how you were happens. mentioning that we needed to find like a different word for the quote-unquote broken, I feel like nobody is ever broken. It's like what I said earlier. Your depression and your anxiety, it's a part of you. And... Coming from somebody who's dealt with um, depression and anxiety for 13 years, it's my anxiety. Like, this is my personal experience, and I just want to let everyone know that, that this is what I went through. Um, I know that with my depression and my anxiety, that it, it runs a little bit more deeper and that I will have this depression and this anxiety the PTSD, the body dysmorphia, like I will have all of that for the rest of my life. But like you said, it's that awareness. 
I know that I'm not okay, but it's okay to not be okay. And I lack motivation half the time because of my depression and my anxiety. So the two, like the biggest things for me when I was going into therapy was like you said, that awareness, but, and then like keep moving forward. Like that's the biggest thing is with a lot of the stuff that happens to me, I have to be really good at brushing it off. Like I just have to keep moving forward. Like, yeah, that happened. I'll still. I have to, but I got to keep going because if not, if I linger on anything for too terribly long, that's when my anxiety acts up. That's when my depression acts up. It's when I linger on something that happened that I can't change. And you're in being in see, yeah, my bad habit is I still in it. <laughs> I tell Andrew, it's my partner. I still in it. And, you know, if something happens like at work or something happens at the gym or something happens where something made me angry, especially anger, anger, I will water bottle sit. in the refrigerator. I don't know what the hell that was. That I, was kind of funny. I think I was lie. just exhausted. But <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was exhausted, too. So I, I get that tired. completely. But I for me, I stew on and I ruminate. And I remember and I run through, and this was part of my experience growing up, was that I had to play through every possible You do the what if scenarios, yeah, which is also a snowball Catastrophizing, effect. yeah, and going through the whole rigmarole of trying to identify and predict the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in doing so, you end up creating a fight or flight situation within your body. And you can't get out of that because you're like, in your body. <laughs> with the And that's something that I wanted to mention earlier. With the fight or flight, you have your sympathetic system and then you have your parasympathetic system. And a lot of people with depression and anxiety or any kind of traumatic... They're stuck in their sympathetic. They're, yeah, they're stuck in that fight mode. And especially for me, I get stuck in that fight mode a lot. And I want to talk really briefly on fight or flight that my therapy sessions brought to light for me. Um, Yesterday, I recently heard that you have uh, fight, flight, and then you have one other one. I remember this was during Um, my therapy, wasn't it? I can't remember. She said it was fight, flight, or... I can't remember the third one that she said because it was different from what I had heard, and I was like, "She, yeah, I don't, she added I don't a third agree. one, but I can't remember what that third one is." So but I then, liked it. I see. I did not. You like <laughs> no, that. I did not because it was it was uh, surrender. She called surrender. it surrender, and my therapy said something different. She said fawn. Fawn. Fawning is whenever, and I did, and I, this is like the very first time I'd ever heard that word fawn. <clears throat> Is whenever you people please. Oh, that's me. It is yep. a method of fight or flight that gets you into safety by, for lack of better terms, kissing ass or or being yes woman, yes woman, yes right. man, yes person, like Avo- conflict avoidant. Mm-hmm. That's what the whole point of fawn is. Is I do not want to experience conflict. Surrender. Same thing. It's it's now that I think about it, it's, I, the, it's same the same thing, word. but it's different wording. And I do like the wording that your therapist used a little bit better. I think it makes more sense, sense. for my situation. Yeah. In terms of if I do, and that happened a lot with my parental experience, was that it became a lot of, you know, I need to people please. I need to make sure that the peace in the valley is kept by whatever situation caused this anxiety, I need to grease the wheels and get it fixed. Yeah. 
And that's where you, because that's not fighting, that's not fleeing, it's fixing. Yeah, which is fawning, which is keeping the peace. Exactly. That's what I feel like. That's what happened with my dad a lot. Like, um, I was so desperate just to have him love me, and I wanted to mean more to him than stealing and the drugs and all of that. Like, I wanted. I did everything. But you're talking about your dad, not you. Okay. My dad. Yeah, no. Just want to clarify for audience listening. Yeah. No, my dad is... uh, Nicole's a great person. (laughs) My dad will just say he's a con man. He's a very... He he was good at conning people. He got a record. Yeah. No, he has a long record. (laughs) But uh, I was so desperate, even as a young kid that I wanted my dad's love. And you know, I will say, I don't desperate implies that you didn't deserve it. Like you deserved all the love in the world from your father. But and your for mother. a young kid, like when I first started <clears throat> therapy, I mean, I blamed myself for everything. Duh. I blamed myself for Cuz who dad. else can you blame? Exactly. It was <clears throat> it was e- much easier to blame me because right. I am the oldest of four. Right. And so I felt like I was the first kid like I had to have done... I mean, I was a sick baby, but that was also his fault. And you didn't do anything. You did nothing. Because you were... You... At, at that early stage in life, and this is... I read this book called Scattered Minds by uh, Gabor Mate. Um, and it's about healing and learning about ADHD and, and trauma. The first... We forget... Because we, we're not cognizant. We I don't remember the first year of my birth. Some people do, but I don't. But so much occurred during that year to set our biological um, programming, as I mentioned earlier, because in the environment that parents and guardians create within that first year, and even going back further into the, the womb of the mother, if the mother experiences a lot of trauma in her, in her, in her life, even in pregnancy, that the baby experiences the hormones that the mother produces everything the mother experiences runs through the child at some point what during pregnancy and then in that first year the child's mind is so vulnerable to everything going on to the environment because it's the environment is the only thing that's constantly there whether it be very hostile or very nurturing or very lonely um you know that can all play a factor in later experiences into even into adulthood people forget that you know and that's what the the mind you know scattered minds gets into is that how does that early childhood uh experience of literally being an infant impact you all the way to, to the day you die oh um i can say from remarkable. personal experience i mean not to, I'm not going to say my mom's story or anything because that would be something I would have to ask her first. But I can give like some background where even when she was pregnant with me, like things were difficult for her. Um, my dad didn't treat her right. Um, I will say that if it says anything, she would be six, seven months pregnant and walking three miles to work in the snow mm-hmm. and would have to walk back. So that's the kind of thing that she had to deal with when it came to him and not having food all the time. So for the first year of my life, I was sick because I wasn't fed properly. Not my mom's fault, dad's fault all the way. But I feel like that's kind of, I grew up in chaos. 
And that chaos was something that my mom really did try to keep us away from. Like she tried her hardest, but it was just, it was there. So now in my adulthood, if I'm not surrounded in chaos, I don't feel okay because that's not my normal. Even though I would love to not find peace in that chaos, that's like one of the biggest reasons why I'm going to therapy is I want to be able to experience life and not rely on chaos to make me feel normal. Well, and to say, you know, I've gone through a a similar experience where going from a very chaotic situation into a peaceful situation is just as turbulent of an experience as going from peaceful to chaotic. I know you were telling me about it yesterday. You should tell everybody what you told me. Right. Well, that's that's the point (laughs) of the segue. Um, is that whenever you are experiencing a chaotic environment for a very long time, it can be difficult to make the transition to a peaceful environment. And that peaceful environment is something that you have to get used to because your entire life has been wrapped up in an idea that you will never experience that or that, or that, that is it's not far possible away. for you. Well, not necessarily possible. Well, yes, that's a possible. That's, that's one way that's to look one at it for me. But in my mind, it was always something external it was a dopamine driven charge like it was something that i desired it was it was something i was going after once it arrived it didn't i didn't know how to i first off was like didn't know it was here <laughs> all of a sudden i was in a very peaceful state a very financially secure state a very emotionally secure state that was self-driven that was well, I brought found myself somebody here. who actually appreciates you. Well, for this you. was before this was before that. It was a yes, it was a situation where I was em- I was emotionally secure before I was financially secure. Yeah. And so whenever I was emotionally secure, still I, I became emotionally secure in college whenever I was able to actually wrap my mind around the idea that um, you know, <clears throat> I need to enjoy being alone and being in my own space and I needed to figure out you know what are the things that I like what are the things that I enjoy and I need to prioritize myself and once you learn the you know rules of self-priority you're able to then emotionally secure yourself because you are providing for your own emotional security you are no longer reactive to the rest of the world your your locus of control is no longer external it is internal i am responsible for my own happiness for my own existence and you know that is something and it's funny how my belief in you know spirituality changed whenever yeah. my locus of control shifted inward um, because now all of a sudden it was my responsibility for my happiness. I yeah. wasn't, I wasn't relying on someone else to provide that happiness or something or some place to provide me that happiness. And, you know, that had to take me chasing that and going to those places that I thought would make me happy and they didn't and being with those people that I thought would make me happy and they didn't. And so that's whenever I was able to actually become emotionally was secure, was in the process of hunting that stuff down and never reaching the gold at the end of the rainbow and so that is kind of for me it felt like the easy way to learn that lesson because I got all these experiences along the way but there might be other ways to just come to terms that you know this is emotional security and it's not something you just wake up and feel like oh yeah it's not an overnight wow I am happy no it's it is a matter of that if something happens 
in my environment. It will not impact me to a point where I will change deeply my emotional security. And, you know, then begs the question, what is emotional security? And I can't answer that because I, it's different, I, feel I would like imagine, for everyone. But yeah. for me, emotional security is... Emotional security is being able to comfortably um, take risk, being able to comfortably um, pursue what I would like to do without worrying about what other people think and being able to... Your skin becomes thicker almost. Like a lot of what people say just kind of rolls off your shoulder. Because you're comfortable in your skin. You're comfortable in who you are. You sit in your power. You sit in the idea that this is how... I am, this is who I am, and that is not something easy to achieve. No, I know, it's something that I'm still working on. Right, and it is something you lose as you change, and as you grow, and as your environment does uh, adjust and make changes. On that note, because it ties in so perfectly with what you said, um, I know... My journey with emotional stability mm-hmm. has been very, very rocky. And that's because, I mean, you and I, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty of like the schools that we grew up in because it was religious schools. And I feel like with the religious schools, the biggest thing that they tell you is you can only be happy if you have that person in your heart. Right. And, and I, I'll go ahead and throw the hat in the ring. I went. I grew up in a Catholic school. I, I went to a. Uh, I won't say the school, but I basically grew up in. a You cult. could say the denomination. The denom. Well, it was Baptist, but yeah. I feel like it was more than Baptist. It's a cult. We had a strong. There was a strong presence in reliance on God and how God impacts your. Mental health was life. not a thing at my school. Like the biggest thing is Well, is, because that invites independence. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> their their whole philosophy and that was one of the reasons why I left is during my tenth grade year, we were in our health class. And in our health class there's not even an inkling of anything related to mental health in our mm-hmm. science books. The biggest thing, like all of the sciences that they taught, like math um history all of that it was tied to god like that's what they that's they tied everything and so when it Mm -hmm. came to mental health their idea of mental health was well you're gonna have mental illness if you don't have god in your heart because that's satan satan is your mental illness i know It, it i will say it's kind of funny because you and i had a very different experience in terms of religious schools my i like my school did teach evolution my they they and I think that was more the teacher I had. I had teachers that were, um, you know, very honest with their experiences in life. And they weren't afraid. Like, we had traditional, you know, sex ed where it was like, yeah, practice abstinence. We had one mentioned <clears throat> one class period of right. oh, this we, is what that is. And we had sex ed that was official, that was abstinence is the best policy. And then my biology teacher was like, Go get condoms, get on birth control. (laughs) This is not me saying this because I'll lose my job. But what I'm saying is do this (laughs) and you'll be a lot, a lot safer. And so, you know, so my, my school was not necessarily as, um, 
I mean, point blank in <laughs> our rules say, of conduct. Indoctrinating as yours was. Oh my goodness. In our rules of conduct, one of the rules was no premanageable sex. No homopho- uh You can't... You are not allowed to be a homo... Uh, you're not allowed to be gay. Yeah, you're not allowed to be gay. Right. Like, they encourage homophobia. That's what I meant to say. And that's not... That wasn't an experience that I had outright my school would point blank expel you until you got cured yes yeah i I, we had openly gay individuals at our school um that was something that occurred and you know as someone who went to school and you know after as soon as i graduated i came out and it was a very different experience for me because i was literally transitioning right into a very liberal university and so it wasn't necessarily it wasn't that rocky as other people probably had experienced. Um, and in that way, I got that easy. <clears throat> but I will say that at the intersection of mental health and religiosity and spirituality is, a, is simply the locus of control. Where you see your own ability to change your mental or physical environment is... You know, and you're familiar with the term locus of control, right? Yeah. and you But know, explain it for those who may not know. Sure, yeah. The, the locus of control is basically the idea in psychology that you either have control over your environment or you don't. and Or someone else does. Or something else does. People who, you know, who look to God and look to, you know, who... And I, I don't want to pick on religion because people put their faith in a lot of things. People put their faith in the stock market. People who say... And I'll choose the stock market because it's a little bit less tinderboxy. <laughs> the stock market, people look and they put their money in there and they say, okay, this is a guy. I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm, I, I am confident that this will produce me returns, but I'm also willing to Take not it, yeah. be that. But basically, you're not earning the money. That's the stock market producing the money based off of fluctuations in the market. That is an external locus of control. I believe my... The, my gains and losses to come from things that are completely out of my control. An internal locus of control is the opposite, where, you know, I believe, I change, I make that money. And it's not a belief that, oh, I make the stock market up and down. No, it's I go and earn my money, and it's mine, and I have it. I can produce money on my own. I don't need to, to rely on the whims and ups and downs and booms and busts of the market. You know, religion is similar in terms of that, you know, people look to God to provide for them to make sure to ensure their safety. And someone yeah, who is it's internal, more, is, I know they provide for their own safety. From what you were saying, I feel like people who do look to God, most of them, I mean, especially coming and from I would, personal And I'm going to broaden experience. God and say... Uh, divine beings. There you go. Because I, I, you can't I, even that keep way it. More, at, it's more inclusive, and that it's not. Well, it's so, just it, it. It that term is just a little bit easier to be related. Whoever to. you look upon, whoever you believe in, I feel like no matter with any kind of religion, it's more of. And this the doesn't stop at religion either. That goes to you know followings of celebrities exactly it could be for anything whoever you look up to your idol it's more of like a safety net in a sense where if that makes sense like a, it's a safety net that's not actually there yeah it's, it's like a false, a false safety, safety net 
And um, I think that's like the biggest thing with growing up in a religious school is I that I had a lot of internalized homophobia. And I think that was one of my biggest struggles when I was younger was I grew up and almost every day I would hear, oh, you're going to hell. Um, It's a disease. It can be catched. All of that horrible, (laughs) horrendous stuff. So from probably a young age, like Mm -hmm. I, from what my mom, because my mom and I have had very many talks about this. And she told me that she noticed that I started having crushes on not only girls, but guys when I was seven. And so from the age of seven to about the age of 16 was when I was immersed in that religion, in that culture. Which is funny that that is the age that that happened. Because in the Catholic tradition, seven is the age that you become um, like fully aware and able to make decisions regarding your beliefs. Yeah. So I know... It's just an interesting moment that that's how... That is... That's when that rhetoric begins. Mm-hmm. And no, on it truly and it honestly, it's not just the first year under- of life that's truly important. It's like the oh, first yeah, no, twenty-five yeah. years of life because your brain your doesn't even then. But you, your brain doesn't stop fully developing for most until the age of twenty-five. Right, so but as soon as you hit twenty-five, it's not like it's done changing. No, it's not done changing ever. But your brain is still growing and developing more so than after the age of 25 which is why I feel like I didn't want therapy when I was younger was it stemmed a lot from the internalized homophobia and my brain was still developing like I was I couldn't come to terms with the fact that I did like girls too like that was a lot of my depression and a lot of my anxiety because Me too. I never felt normal. I like, never I felt, felt normal either liking guys. Yeah. And once I was You couldn't out, connect. I couldn't connect. Like I made no friends. I was the one that was picked yeah. on at school. And that's because I was the one that would stick up for others. What the school that I went to, if you do not have money, if you are not a student or a a, a child of a staff member who worked there, it was really hard to fit in like you truly and honestly had to have that same mentality as everybody else in order to fit in but i didn't have that mentality i didn't want to be mean to somebody just because of a person that they liked like i didn't you didn't understand i didn't understand why somebody could have so much hate and that's like why i'm so appreciative towards my mom is from a young age, I would go back and I would tell her some of the stuff that I would hear. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I went for so long as I did was the education itself. Yeah. Like, despite how they had to tie in everything to a divine being, it was really good education. And I... Uh, you know, I... My parents fell into that trap. You know, paid a lot of money. Um... I cannot, and this is no shame to my teachers if they're listening, um, but I can't vouch for the quality of education in a parochial or a um, non-state school. Um, And that is simply because, A, they're underfunded even further, typically, sometimes, and so they don't have the most up-to-date textbooks. 
Oh, not pen. Not can't say that. But not well, the they produced their own textbooks. Yeah, that's that's I, that's what they did. They wrote their own, <laughs> which is bullshit. That's um, true. So my point being is that within a parochial, like I was, I did not score well on the ACT and SAT after taking them multiple times. Really? No, horribly. I, yeah, no, I was not good at standardized tests. I, I also, wasn't you know, and. The people, the individuals who scored really high, they were very affluent. They had, what they typically had was a sibling who was in the class ahead of them, who was passing them notes. And also, we figured out um, that teachers were taking bribes. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Um you know, so there were pathways of getting ahead if you had money. Not at Pen- not at the school I went to. Everybody was virgins, except if they weren't married. Oh, I'm talking they about were- money. No, no, no. I know, but I'm saying at my school, everybody was like the teachers weren't happy, and you could feel that too. And a lot of when it comes to learning, I feel like the person who's teaching it, and that's why I have mad respect. For the teachers who do genuinely care about their kids. Oh, 100%. And because I felt like at the school that I went to, that it was all so, they were not happy. And I noticed that a lot of people who went there were not happy people. Well, and if you look at, like, like, you know, to kind of refocus the conversation on the psychology of it is that, you know, because we could totally turn this into a bitch fest about our you know, our gripes about our schools, but at the end of the day, they're human beings and, mm-hmm. you know, individuals who are intimidated by independent thought. Free thinkers. Free thinking is hard. Mm-hmm. Free thinking is something that's scary because it, it, it puts you, and I think this is probably one of the reasons why people who were bullied and people who were ostracized from society, they end up being the loudest voices later in life. They end up being the the really creative free thinkers because they have all they they didn't have any any um, say in the groups. Matter. They yeah. didn't have any groups to group think with. They yeah. they they all their I whole think life for myself. they thought for themselves because they didn't have any other voices to interact with so they just said you know what i'm gonna listen you know this sounds bad i'm gonna listen to the voices in my head listen to my thoughts i'm gonna listen to what i'm thinking i'm listening to you know ideas and I'm especially look at with a situation us. and think for myself and not base my own opinion around what other people say and fitting to fit in. in exactly and you know one of the things that happened with us that was brand new for humanity was the internet okay. we had this immense source of knowledge this immense source of opinions of 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 i mean just youtube and the hours that i would spend watching other people live their lives and in you know they were really positive people that impacted my ability to think and they impacted, you know, my ability to just engage with the world on in a different way that wasn't reliant upon the opinions of other kids. Yeah. And that's where I think you get people who appear to be old souls or more um homebodies. Homebodies, sure, yeah. Um, definitely. 
um, but more um, independent thinking. And yeah. who, they're not afraid to go against the grain because they're okay with not being accepted. They're yeah. okay with people going, oh, that's weird. Or, oh, no, thank you. I'm good. They're like, okay, fuck off. Bye. See you later. I don't care what you <laughs> You know? Right. It's like, okay. You're just, I mean, just added to the we pile. We say of, that we know, don't things. care what other people think. But at the end of the day, we're human. We do care. But being um, that free thinker has definitely allowed more of others' opinions to roll off my shoulders. But I've also grown up in an atmosphere where we're able to have, like, talks and have... That's... I feel like that's, like, the biggest... It's one of the biggest ways that people stop being friends or stop liking each other or you have to be able to have a safe place to have conversations even if you don't disagree agree with the person agree to disagree and with a lot of that i've met Mm -hmm. if they your opinions let's say we'll call her alice alice and i had very different opinions she had the opinion that it was her way or the highway And she wanted me to think the same way as her. And when I didn't think the same way as her, and I wasn't afraid to voice my opinion to her, because she intimidates everybody that she's around. Like, everybody that I've met who has Alice in her life, they admit that they are afraid to say anything to her because she blows up. She gets nasty. She'll cut you down at your knees. And she'll cut you off. Like, you will no longer be a part of her life. You will no longer reap the benefits, quote unquote, that she can offer. And I had Quick to question. remind my... Yeah, what's your question? From a clinical perspective and what you're studying, what does that tell you about her? Oh, she's a narcissist, point blank. Well, well, yes, but if you take the emotion yeah, out, of, out it, of it, and if, so let's she put did you in deal terms of... with a lot of traumatic experiences, which is why I try so hard to remain sympathetic towards her because she did her story when I heard it, it definitely, it, it snapped all the pieces into place and kind of allowed me to understand her a little bit better. And that's kind of why I love that I'm studying psychology is I'm not licensed. I'm not nowhere near ready to help another person out. But learning about the human mind and understanding how the human mind works and how trauma affects the human mind, it definitely has given me a better understanding of how I can be kinder to people who aren't nearly as kind to others because we don't know what anybody goes through right that being said even though i'm sympathetic towards her like i told her when i had a conversation with her i if you want to have respect respect is something that is earned it's not just given and how can i respect you as a person if you don't respect me and respect what i went through mm-hmm. because you want me to respect your traumatic past, your traumatic experiences, but you can't do the same for me. And you have to find that balance of being sympathetic towards another person, but not allowing them to derail your journey and your healing. Well, and as a clinician and in a clinical practice, 
in terms of you know if you were if you were patient or if you were you know physician and she was patient my first instinct is abandonment oh yeah that one who gets angry whenever someone doesn't agree is like fine well then i'm just going to remove you she in the best way i know how by being mean yeah definitely there is abandonment and from being around her it's her from what i could see and what i could gather she definitely did not feel heard as a child she did not have that's a big thing being understood like we all want to just be understood understood. we just want to be heard and that's kind of something that with her she was never listened to as a child like Mm -hmm. she went through a lot of crappy situations that landed her in the position where she is today but with that being said like i tell everybody that i'm around a lot of the why arguments happen so often between two people is because when you're heated, when you're in that moment, when somebody else upsets you in any kind of way, what is your automatic response when you're talking to that person? Are you asking me? Yeah. If someone's, if someone has upset me and I'm, you know, talking with them, well, I'll be honest. My first instinct is to, Nope, I don't want to talk to you anymore. Exactly. I've shut the conversation down. Um, and the, for me, that's never produced, you know, anything good. We usually just never speak. Yeah. It shuts that conversation and when, that door. When it comes to arguments, the biggest thing that I've learned is you have to go in willing to listen. Because that's what a lot of times happens in arguments is the reason why two people argue is because they're not going in there with the idea to, even if you've done absolutely nothing wrong, as as somebody like for me who wasn't listened to much as a child, like my first initial reaction to having an argument or having a discussion is with visceral. somebody, it's to defend myself. It's an emotional reaction. Yeah, it's an emotional reaction to defend myself, to defend whatever it is that I'm talking about. And I've had to change that. And when I go into a conversation, even if it's like a conversation like this, willing to listen, because that's the biggest thing, is willing to listen, not only defend, not only fight for what you believe in or how you feel, but also be willing to listen to that person and what they Mm -hmm. have to say. Because you never know. You may have subconsciously done something that upset them and them in return retaliate or vice versa. So if you can go into a conversation and just sit down like this mm-hmm. and talk it out and just be willing to listen, I, for me, that has stopped a lot of arguments. But I still struggle with it. Well, and the funny thing is that in terms of Socrates, to go back to you know <clears throat> ancient times... What feels like ancient times. Um, in the Socratic method of argument is that's really the root of arguing. Anything else, which is, you know, the Socratic method is you each present evidence and you give time for each one to speak. Mm-hmm. Argue, arguing has got this negative connotation. The word argument connotates a fight or some form of heated emotional exchange. Whereas actual argument is like what happens in court where each side presents evidence and then an adjudicated in an, in an, in a manner 
that is, you know, coherent with a peaceful, cerebral conversation, we come to a conclusion on who has the more compelling, convincing evidence. But it's, I feel like we should take something from lawyers in the sense of having that mentality too, almost, where when you go into, it doesn't even have to be an argument. It just can be a simple discussion. It's of, a conversation. Yeah, exactly. a conversation. Anything outside of that where emotions are engaged, that's, that is not an argument. That's a heated emotional exchange. Mm-hmm. And what the difference is, is that whenever your emotions are involved, your brain, your the frontal, so your emotions exist in your, you know, in your, I believe in your amygdala. It's an ancient part of the brain where it's basically, you know, the, the lower you are physically, anatomically, the lower you are in the brain, the older the brain is. And the older that center is, it's connected to our very primal, very, you know, ancient reactions to, to, our, to stimuli. Whereas the, the, the further, the taller anatomically you get in the brain and the more forward, that's your, you know, your critical thinking executive functioning that is taking over after <laughs> the emotions. Um, and so that's where we get into trouble is if we don't engage our critical thinking and our, you know, frontal cortex and we let the, and we let the amygdala run. And, you know, that's when you get into conversations that are no longer conversations, they're heated emotional exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever it comes down to having patience and having the ability to listen and the ability to have a genuine Socratic argument is engaging in, or more, more aptly disengaging your emotions entirely. Um, because they have no place because they're not based off evidence. They're based off of your experiences in your life, which have nothing to do with whatever the hell you're talking about or discussing or trying to get to the bottom of at that point in time. Yeah. So I wanted to look up and that's why I was scrolling on my phone. And it was so rude. I'm so kidding. sorry. <laughs> but um, there's this one, like this one thing that I carry around with me no matter where I go and I had to find it. Mm-hmm. So it says, if you spend your time chasing butterflies, they'll fly away. But if you spend your time making a beautiful garden, the butterflies will come to you. When you focus on improving yourself, everything you want will come to you. We attract based on who we are, not what we want. Don't chase, attract. And who wrote that? Give them credit. Um, Facebook. Thank you, Facebook. Um, <laughs> it doesn't. It, it doesn't tell doesn't me who say it's anything. by. Oh. And that's. I, but there is one um, that I do follow on Facebook quite often, and I haven't been on Facebook in a while, and I forgot their name, but. They have like little messages and it's nice. And that's to go with that. Don't chase, attract. So that's like. What does that mean? Okay. I mean, I know what you mean, but like it's not to be rude. It's a bit of a cliche. So it is honestly a cliche, but when you actually break it down and think about it. So your body is the only body that you're ever going to get. Your mind is the only mind that you're ever going to get. So instead of trying to fight with everything that's going on around you, you take, you take the time and you 
can bring the microphone I know I can you. bring it. It's <laughs> it's expensive. Listen, I'm very... It's on a very nice boom arm. You'll be fine. It is. It's really nice setup. But essentially, you are your own garden. If you want to attract good people, if you want to attract, like, your job, you right out of college. I'm so proud of you, by the way, for that. I don't tell you that enough. I'm so proud of who you are today. Thank you. And I'm so happy you finally have a person who loves you for you. Thank you. And I'm very happy, too. Yeah, you know, you deserve all the happiness. But right now, your garden is beautiful. And have you noticed that... Most of the people that you surround yourself with, the things that are happening in your life, they're just coming to you. Like you, you don't have to fight tooth and nail to have the good people in your life, to have your good job, a good partner. You attracted that because you have a beautiful garden. You have a beautiful soul, a beautiful mind, a beautiful heart. Once you improve who you are and you put yourself first and you get that emotional stability that you're talking about. You get the financial stability. You, at the end of the day, do it yourself. No one else got that for you. You didn't. I love the sentiment. It, attracting implies I did something to attract it. Mm, you had I poised, self-improvement. I poised myself to accept whatever comes and that's like that's that's the difference and that's the that's where i was kind of gonna get it there was that for me i did not do anything specific or or was looking for what i'm saying is you started your own personal growth you started your own personal journey you put yourself first I and made that's kind of what I meant by like creating a beautiful garden. You're fixing, not fixing, but you are improving who you are as a person, not for anybody else, but yourself. Right. And that's what I meant by don't yeah. chase, attract. <clears throat> don't chase your journey. Don't chase any of that. Let it happen as it goes. Don't force yourself to quote unquote, fix your problems. Find the dream job, find the right person. Yeah. Put yourself first, take a look at yourself and then from who you are, because a lot of what happens to you, I feel like is based off of who you surround yourself with, um, your reactions, your thoughts, your feelings. When you surround yourself with good people, when you surround yourself in a good environment and you have that, ability to put yourself first because with me for the longest time i felt like if i put myself first it was selfish yeah and i i've got that reminds me of something actually and i think that you know don't dress rehearse tragedy to beat vulnerability to the punch yeah i saw that on tiktok and i love that statement because that is exactly what someone who's anxious that's a, that's what i did for a very long very very long time i consistently in my mind ran through the dress rehearsal of what was going to happen to in order to not be vulnerable and in that ability to accept one situation is also the ability to accept full unequivocal i think that's the word un 
you know, unstopped vulnerability. And it's also what's even scarier relinquishing control yes and that's like what i said earlier it's the fact that you can't control what goes on in the world you can't control like i can't control your reactions to anything look if i said something i can't control how you react whether it's good whether it's bad so say for instance i came up to you and i was i called you (laughs) not so nice thing I don't control your reaction. What I control is the fact that I said what I said, and that's causing you to react the way that you did. Right. So it's just that reminder of being self-aware. And that's where that self-awareness comes in, is knowing that what you say doesn't affect just you. It affects another person. Which is why you have to be mindful of what you say. And then sometimes you have to let another person know when they're not being mindful. Well, exactly. And that's where your locus of control comes back in. And it's like the balance. You have to find that balance. Right. You have balance and then you also have the ability to... You're totally correct in that the only thing you have control over is your reaction to the present moment. And, you know, your ability to accept vulnerability and relinquish control is exactly... Ironically relinquishing control invites a lot more control over yourself Mm -hmm. because now you're no longer worried about monitoring and managing everything going on in your life. Other people's emotions, other people's reactions. Yeah, right. You've unloaded your blame. That's the biggest thing is you, yes, I'm a people pleaser. Yes, I, I am a kind of person who has been through some pretty crappy things and that has shaped me into who I am today. And the biggest part of that is I don't want my reactions, my words, my everything to cause harm to another person. And that's what I can control. I can control how I react to the immediate people around me. And my reactions, in a sense, can dictate another person's reaction. Which is why I try really hard to be the go with the flow kind of person. But in all reality, I do like what you like. Remember when we went on our trip to New York and you had all of your list of things you wanted to do, you had your plot points of, and in that moment, I couldn't understand, but now I understand. It's that sense of control, and it's really hard to relinquish control. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely a big lesson of having to control my own reactions because you. And if we take it, I started to cut you off, but if we take it a step further, is beyond control is wanting to meter and manage expectations. I want to, I want, I am expecting that we go to the World Trade Center and Madison Square Gardens, and I'm expecting all of these things because that's what I perceive as a successful trip to New York. And so that is the layer that is what's propelling and motivating my need for control over that particular situation where you go wrong in that thinking. And I go wrong in that thinking is that in the relinquishing of control, you're happier if you make those things or not. Because you're just in the here and now. You're not 
putting your happiness. Your happiness is not dependent on whether or not you do that. Your happiness is not dependent upon right. You're in once again. You are regaining control over your own happiness. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that's a good spot to leave off. I think so actually. too. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, I think that that was um, you know relinquishing control to gain happiness is something that sounds brainwashy but is essential for just simply existing yeah because you can't control everything in your life and you can only control your reaction so i feel like after every podcast we should leave a word for them to think about and i think the word today is sonder and sonder is the realization that each passerby lives a life as vivid and complex as your own Take an anthill. You for love example. that word. I love that word. I have loved that you word. You have for like s- a fetish for this word. I do, mm. but it's also the constant reminder that I'm not the only person in the world. Right, you're one of a very complex tapestry. Exactly, and yeah. you may even be the background in somebody else's life, and like you don't we, even know it. Exactly, and it's the reminder that we never know what other people are going through. Right, and if we can just give another person a simple smile. Who knows what that smile can do for that person? It's just remember to be a little bit kinder. The world is a nasty place sometimes. And all you can do is, like we talked about, control your own reactions. You can't control anybody else. Mm-hmm. So what you put into the world is equally as important as the person next to you. You totally. may be a small person, but... I believe who, there's more good people than bad. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, no. Definitely. Well, that's, that's the hope. That there are more good people than there I think are. It's a fact. I I I there are just with going to EDC this weekend. I feel there are more good people than bad. Yeah, like, no. I will say that the amount of positivity and the amount of people that I was able to see that that was probably the best part is that in all of that, you know, people very, and so yeah. much going on, everyone was just simply existing happy to exist there and happy to be there and happy to, you know, just have this experience all together. And I think that that is something that reminds me, you know, that I think you know, there was a lot of times that people do horrible shit that make you lose, quote unquote, lose faith in humanity. But I think we have a very high bar for the expectation of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like we forget that they're humans. You they know, if may, yeah. one of us is complex then all of us together are really, really good. Complex. But anyways, thank you for being on the podcast and I appreciate the conversation and we'll probably, uh, we'll probably talk again soon. But anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank <laughs> Thanks you. for listening everyone. Right. Have a good day.